when we look at some some of the startling numbers about women in leadership and and who's at the table making incredibly important decisions that that affect women, that affect our lives, our bodies, at the future of our children, our planet, um, we are disproportionately not at the table. And I think so much this there's a conversation around like girl power, just empower yourselves, like love yourselves, ladies. And there, to me, that's I'm not interested in that. I am way more interested in um, actually providing tools. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I sit down for meaningful conversations with people who aim to build fewer walls, longer bridges, and bigger tables with their lives and work. My guests want to leave the planet much better than they found it. And I truly hope today's conversation gives you hope and pushes you to give more dams than ever before. Friends, before I introduce my guests today, let's talk Thanksgiving. Many of you listening around the world may not celebrate Thanksgiving, and if you do, it's not happening this week. It's happening some other time in the year. In the United States, however, where I currently live, it's Thanksgiving week, and Thanksgiving Day is coming up. Because there is a huge spike in coronavirus cases, and because we are going into somewhat of another lockdown, many of you won't be seeing friends or family for Thanksgiving. We, speaking for my family and I, won't be seeing our extended family, and that's sad. So I wanted to acknowledge your pain and the general heaviness of this year. And not that you're looking for permission from me, but I wanted to give you permission to be sad and grieve so much about this year, and grieve that you'll miss being with family and friends in just a few days. But if I may, I implore you to not stay there. Gratitude is key right now. So many of us are experiencing a very privileged existence in the world, and we have everything we need and more. So once you're done being sad, once you're done feeling sad, Consider spending more time than you normally do this year being grateful and sharing that gratitude with those around you. Make some phone calls, send some texts, and let's allow gratitude to encourage us and carry us during these hard times. Happy Thanksgiving, my friends. I love you all. Hang in there. Now, my guest this week is actress and activist June Diane Raphael. June is married to actor and comedian Paul Shear, but we don't talk about that. June has starred in shows and movies like Parks and Rec, New Girl, Grace and Frankie, and Longshot, but we don't talk about her career all that much. What I wanted to have June on to talk about is her company, The Jane Club. The Jane Club is an organization that takes care of the women who take care of everything else. Now, before the pandemic, they offered a physical space in LA where women could receive childcare, work on their projects or companies, get a massage, and so much more. And since the pandemic started, they've had to give up that physical space and they shifted their company online. And you know what? They've grown some 450%. So what does this have to do with let's give a damn? So much. And you'll have to listen to our conversation to find out more. It's delightful get ready for it. Before we begin, however, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, and I mean that, email me at hello at letsgivadam.com 
or you can text me at 646-328-6414 to join our texting community where I'll send you updates and we can chat back and forth anytime you want in about anything. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the amazing June Diane Rayfield. Let's go. It is such a pleasure to have June Diane Rayfield here on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome, June. Hi, Nick. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is it is absolutely my pleasure. I'm so excited to get to speak with you today. We have so much to get into, um, but let's let's begin with just how how you're feeling, how things are going, you know, just a few, you know, we had planned and I always try to plan these for 75 to 90 minutes and just a few minutes ago, uh, your, your teammate that was connecting us on this was like, can we keep it to an hour? There's childcare issues. They're back in lockdown. And I'm like, hell yeah. Like I totally get it. This has been some crazy, crazy few months. So how are you? Oh my gosh. I, well, all things considered and in the big picture, I'm doing just fine. Um, truly, but it is an interesting time where like the domestic sphere has never been so present, you know, and public. And that's one of the things I actually like about this time is the understanding and the, um, and and that's something I hope to, to take forward with even when we are, you know, out of lockdown and out of, um, uh, a quarantine and into a vaccinated post-COVID world that, that people's lives, which I think, especially for women, we often hide or pretend are not happening or don't want to reveal because maybe it's going to imply that we don't care enough about being here are, are, are seen in a different way now. And I think actually there's more space for all of that labor to come to light and for people to really acknowledge it and say, oh no, that's valuable too. And um, I see that that's happening and that takes oftentimes precedent. Um, So I am, yes, I am totally juggling and I am fortunate enough to have um, the work of domestic laborers in my home, God bless them, a full-time nanny and uh, someone who also helps me clean the house. So I have help with the domestic labor I do in my home and still am a little bit underwater. Yeah. So um, it hasn't been easy, but I know it's also easier for me than others. And I think, you know, I think the way I'm feeling in general is that my days start off really good and I'm really energized. <laughs> yep. And then slowly I descend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why. I mean, um, it's like the reality of the world and the reality yep. of what's happening. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and there's I a lot. To- I mean, the the election like it it just feels so heavy right now. I can start my day out and I'm naturally not even uh optimistic. I am just a very energized type A like creative uh enneagram 8 like go out there and build and protect and destroy yeah. a few things in the process. And so I can start out my day I start out my day with so much energy like ready to go. And then I'll get into the emails and news and social media and I for for a living I tell stories in a variety of mediums and I start thinking about all that's going on and I'm like, "Damn, 
Like there's a, like if I look right now in my yard right now, everything looks perfect. You know, it's a sunny day here in Nashville and you know, everything looks fine, but out there there's so much pain and hurt and so many people not taking seriously what's going on. So the weight of everything, even if you do have all the help that you have, like it can just get, it can get a lot. It can become a lot. Yeah. And I used to be able to put our kids to sleep and then put in another few hours, even if it was while watching TV, sure. doing kind of the admin of life, getting through certain things that needed to be done and emails, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of busy work. And I'm finding that I'm actually not able to do that anymore. That when night falls, and the children are asleep, I I have to get into bed. Yeah. And I have to just be in bed. That yeah. it, it's so so that's new for me. I feel like I'm not as productive in that way, but I I, I don't have a choice in some ways that I think is good. Yeah. Um, because I, I have to shut off. Yeah. And I, I think that's fine. You know, the post-COVID world is going to look a lot different for our for the industries we work in, for everything. Everything is gonna look different. And I think it's going to need us to be energized and rested up and ready and available because I think there'll be a lot of opportunities, a lot of new ways to create and a lot of new ways to help and a lot of new ways to affect change. And if we're tired out from just hustling our way through the pandemic and not caring for ourselves, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of that, then we're not, we're not going to be up for the task. So I'm, I too have felt that I've, I generally am a kids go to bed, spend some time with my wife. Then I'm back out in my office working till, you know, one in the morning. Sometimes I have like five or six different projects going at all times. And then lately the last month or two, especially with the election shit and all that, like I thought, yeah, kids go down and I'm like, let me just hang out here a little bit longer. Like let's, let's, uh, let's talk longer. Let's watch one more episode. Let's just chill because I am beat like I am drained yes and that's just where we are yeah and I think that so much has been I don't know I, I also believe that we don't feel as a society and culture really comfortable grieving and mm. really comfortable naming grief and things that we've lost and sitting with that and sometimes I think the work of grieving is actually the work of being still. And I think that I'm doing my grieving, the loss of seeing my friends, the loss of, you know, th things that my children have lost, the loss of seeing certain family members and my nephews. I think I'm doing that work at night. And I think it's really important that people name, I mean, listen, I think it would solve a whole host of things if we were able to just say, yep. we've, we've lost things and it sucks and it hurts and we can sit in that and we can do the work of grieving. Um, I think most, mostly our, our culture responds to grief by saying like, that's really sad and got to move on, got to yep. get back out there. And that's going to be the yep. best thing for you is to get back out there. Yep. Well, um, maybe, and maybe not. And yeah. so I think that, I mean, I'm just putting this together right now, but I think that at night I'm, I'm doing some of that grief work of just yeah. sitting. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Well, good for you. Keep, keep that up because again, I think a whole lot of us are going to need the energy for whenever this is over. Yes. I'm trying to store it up. I'm trying to, you know, prepare for that. Cause I hope it'll be in the next few months that we can begin to 
figure out what the new reality looks yeah. like. Um, and it's going to look a lot different. It's going to look a lot different. So I'm I'm ready for it. Okay. So yeah. in this conversation, we have a lot to talk about. I want to talk about the Jane Club. I want to talk about your book, all the different ways that you are helping all, all kinds of people, but especially women. Uh, but before we get to that, let's get some understanding for who you are. For those that, I mean, a lot of people probably know your career, but I'm interested in the backstory. I'm so interested. I, I mean, I, 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 ask people questions for a living right now. And I love to like figure out how you became who you are today. Someone that does care about these things that we're about to dive into. So when I say, tell me your story, whatever comes up, the who, what, when, where, and why of uh, your early life. And then how did you get here? And then we'll Gosh, move on okay. from there. That's a, a pretty small question, right? Like get that done in a few minutes. <laughs> Let me see how to editorialize this. Um, well, I think that I had a really happy childhood um, and a joyful childhood. And um, I'm really grateful for that. And especially, you know, having met so many people who have had childhoods filled with trauma. Mm. Um I didn't have that. I'm not saying I didn't have wants and, and needs that weren't met. I did. But at the end of the day, I felt loved and unconditionally loved. And I felt um, like I had a family structure that was committed to joy and um, laughter. And so that was really in my DNA. And I also, I guess this this is sort of connected to it all and and why I I am interested in, in women and complicated women in terms of playing them um, and characters, but also just in general, because mm -hmm. I think I was so deeply affected by my primary relationship, which was with my mother and um, her. I, I just grew up thinking women were hilarious <laughs> and complicated and endlessly fascinating. Mm. And I look back on it now. I'm actually like, I think it was a, a pretty rude awakening to go kind of come of age and enter into the rest of the world, which didn't value women and centered masculinity so much because I grew up in more of a utopia where I had two sisters and a, a matriarch and a wonderful father too, that also thought my mother was hilarious, mm. fascinating, um, a storyteller. And so, and her friendships were hilarious, fascinating, rich, um, with other women. And so I remember, like, I remember kind of walking into the, the world. Um, and even in my high school, the girls were the sports stars, the girls were the top 10 of my class. It, it just, it, it, it didn't occur to me that there was another world outside of that. And so that was kind of shocking in a way. Hmm. Um, and, but that's really how I grew up, which was, which was, which was um, being delighted by the complicated women in my life and loving how connected they were to each other and how my own female friendships. I also had a, a group of five best friends who I am still best friends with from sixth grade on. 
Wow. Do I count as like deeply impactful to, to my worldview and to my um, belief in what women can do and also how, how uh, special these relationships are. Cause one of the things that I, 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 I think internalized right away was the women have, and I'm going to, the women in my life had this uncanny ability to kind of weed through what was right in front of us and immediately connect to what was true and real. And um, yeah, so, so I, I look back on that and the way that I grew up in this sort of, in some ways, feminist utopia, even though I grew up in a pretty Irish Catholic conservative town, um, there were all these other messages that were so positive uh, from my father too, uh, believing that I could do anything. Yeah. Um, it, and, and my father, for some early formative years, staying home to take care of us, my mother going to work. Wow. Again, I, I had this sort of egalitarian. And, and by the way, I don't think that they necessarily wanted it to be that way. I don't think... Um, that, that was just what economically made sense because my father was a construction worker in the city, in New York city. And, and when there was no work and it made sense for him to stay home and do some of the primary caretaking while my mother went to work. So it wasn't unusual for my my father to pick me up from school and take me out to lunch, um, cut my hair, you know, do some of the so I think I also had modeling for manhood that yeah. was different yeah. from what I would then walk out into the world and see. Um, yeah. Yeah. So th that was you, you, that's a great segue into what I was going to ask, which is at what point, I mean, it's your childhood sounds, obviously at, there's always things, right? We can, there are probably, you know, things that happen, negative memories, all that, but it sounds pretty almost utopian as you pointed out. At what point did you realize was it while you were still under their care or once you had left that you realized, damn, like the rest of the world isn't like this. Like not everybody's like this. Yeah. This isn't what most people, I didn't experience that. I love my family and my parents have gradually grown and matured uh, separately and together over the years. And they're a lot different than they were when I was growing up, but it was not like that growing up. It was the exact opposite of what you just described. So at what point did you realize, man, my experience is not everyone's experience. Yeah. I mean, I think even in high school, even, even in high school, I started to, as I was going through puberty and like super boy crazy and, and, um, obsessed with boys, which I really was, I started to <laughs> already in those kind of, in, in that kind of romantic way, feel, um, like the boys had power. And that I didn't have power. Mm. And so I think those messages were already coming up that if you were a girl and you hooked up with a guy, you were a slut and you had a name. And that was very prevalent in my high school and you were punished. And so that I, I remember being really thrown by um, because in my world and my girlfriend's houses after school, we were iconic we were untouchable we were mm. you know had agency and yet once the boys arrived and we were of course obsessed with all of them they did and we didn't you know we were objects 
Um, and those negotiations, I remember being really bummed out about. And sure. like I, a part of my personality definitely became different in relationship to men. And I became very quiet. I didn't feel like myself. It took me a very long time to have what I think was like an honest relationship with a man, because I felt that what was required of not just me, but all of my girlfriends was that we somehow were, had to do this calibration. Um, and what was even more deeply complicated is I was also obsessed with boys. <laughs> so it was yeah. like, I wanted them so badly. I wanted their attention so badly. I wanted them to want me so badly. And then I was also so scared of them. And I was also, so, you know, that it was just yeah. so, and then I was also like my, I was also going home to a father who's, you know, at like 14, whose like lap I was still sitting on and was so attached to. And so, but then I would go out on the street and I was my full height, which was five, nine at, at 11. And I would be, <laughs> you know, cat calls by grown men at 11 years old. And so there were so many competing messages of like trying to find a young womanhood and girlhood that was, um, that was, I guess, fully realized. It was very hard. Um, so I guess it started as early as that, but I did still, even in that look to my girlfriends for ways to kind of survive that and to negotiate that. And, um, I don't, I think we definitely tried to work within the system. We did not try to disrupt it because what we knew was the boys had power. We wanted their attention, but we also knew we couldn't be sluts, but we wanted to be sluts, but you know, all of the, all of the so much, they were really so much, but they were really, um, you know, we were certainly more powerful together, which, so even in that kind of fucked up, like world of high school and, and young womanhood and sexuality, there was still this power in community of women. In, 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 in this upbringing that you're describing where mom and dad were so present and so there, Um, and you know, it seems like there was a great dynamic in relationship. Did you, was there also an openness to have hard conversations and talk about this stuff with them? Or were you having these conversations going through this alone and with your friends (laughs) and sister and all that? Okay. Go, go into, go into that for a minute. Yes. No, I definitely didn't have. And and so this is what I mean by like, I, you know, I look at my parents now, my parents are, have both also passed away. So I, I have, Mm. I may paint this as more idyllic than it actually was because I spend every day missing them. But, um, I did not have parents who, I always describe my parents this way. Like I had some girlfriends whose parents listened to the Beatles growing up and my parents listened to Elvis growing up. They were also a little bit older. So that's like, if you listen to Beatles, that's a whole different, that's a whole different mindset than growing up listening to Elvis. So my parents were older They, um, I never, you know, we always, my sisters and I joke, we heard my mother say the word penis one time and one time only. And it was to describe what prostate cancer was. And she said, it's cancer of the penis. And we all like screamed and started laughing hysterically. She said the word. (laughs) So there was never, I never got a talk. I never, nobody discussed sex with me. We had three teenage girls in the house. And like, I mean, I think about that now. I'm like, what the like, it's yeah. so crazy to me. Yeah. But at the time, I think there was one book 
that my dad covered, like, you know, he used to cover textbook. There was one book that was like passed along. And I don't even know if it got to me because I was the youngest of three. So we were certainly left on our own to figure that out. And there were no conversations around that. Um, but I also grew up in like a very conservative town yeah. and, and complicated politics. Like my father, my parents are both Catholic. My father was pro-life, but also an environmentalist. And also against the death penalty, like I actually think about his politics and he was a Bernie Sanders supporter, right? He died right before the 2016 election. But wow. I'm like, you don't necessarily see his type of politics anymore, which no. was, you know, like we were before anyone was doing this. My father was composting in the backyard, buying from thrift Love shops, it. never had an air conditioner because he... You know, so we were doing things that were, people just thought we were weird, but my father really um, was an environmentalist and believed in like sustainable energy. So, yeah, but, but we didn't have certainly no conversations about sex at all. Um, And I just was left to, you know, again, through the community of my girlfriends able to figure a lot of that stuff out and find um, safety in them did not get that from my parents. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. That, that seems sort of uh, par for the course for that generation of parents. Yes. Um, like it just, yeah, we won't dwell on it anymore. Uh, you know, point, the point has been made, but it's sa- same in my household. I mean, uh, so I'm one of 12 kids. My parents had 12 kids and eight, eight wow. boys and four girls. And, um, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I was 14 or 15 that we had sort of a, like wet dreams sort of conversation, not even a full on, like, not even a full on, like, okay, this is, this is sex and this is pornography and this is this, and here's the boundaries and here's none of that. And I was 14 or 15 with eight boys, like talk about raging hormones everywhere. Yes. Um, And that's sad. Like, in fact, I'll say this. I have three kids. They are six, seven, and eight. All three of them already know more about sex and reproductive, (laughs) the reproductive nature of women. (laughs) Yeah, 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 sure, maybe. (laughs) But like definitely when I was a teenager, they know more already because I want them, you know, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the drawer in your dad's desk. He's like, don't ever go in there. Well, of course, I, that's the drawer that's I'm going to want to exactly go into. exactly where I'm going. I'm so, going nowhere else but there. A hundred percent. So like I grew up, don't drink, don't smoke, don't do any of that stuff. My kids see me, uh, you know, drink alcohol responsibly, smoke weed responsibly, um, do, do all the things responsibly. And we have these conversations because I want them to grow up uh, being informed and to yes. never be afraid to talk to us about it. I want them to come talk to me and say, here's where I'm struggling. I don't know what's going on. Help me. Totally. The friends the friends are great. And it's so cool that you have that community of, you know, uh, ladies around you. But like a parents, that's a pivotal role. Oh, and by the parents- way, we're all, we were all 12 years old. I mean, how yeah. much <laughs> we have, you know, to the point where when I was in college, my first year of college, I got a raging UTI. And again, 
nobody told me because they didn't have parents ever talked about this. Like, Oh, if you're a young, young woman and you're having sex, like go to the bathroom afterwards. Otherwise you're at risk for UTI. Again, great information. Wish I'd had it. Well, I didn't do that and had such a bad UTI that, I mean, and of course I'm, I'm a recovering Catholic. So at that time I'm like, well, this is it. This is, this is the punishment that I deserve. Um, and I'm sure and this is in, I guess, 98, I'm sure I have HIV and you know what? I should like, these wow. were the types of messages yeah. because I had no one who told me any valuable information. So yeah, I definitely want a different, a, a different, to have different conversations with my own kids. And I also recognize like, you know, nobody had those conversations with my parents either. And they yep. were yeah. limited. And yeah. Our generation gets to break that cycle, I think. For sure. I hope. I hope we get to do that. Okay. I think definitely we do. Yeah, yeah. And we and we should take advantage of that. Like that's mm-hmm. an opportunity that's presented to us. We get to change the nature of the conversations happening. We get to destigmatize all of these like off limits, you know, beware topics. Like, no, that's not that big of a deal. Let's talk yes. about it. Let's yes. talk about it. Um, okay, we're gonna talk about I want to get into the the big stuff uh right now, but before I just want to say we're not going to talk much about your career because a people can go out there and look for it. Many people have already watched your stuff, you know, um, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time there. I went, I went real quickly before our conversation just to IMDb, just to like look at all the things that you were in that I didn't know you were in, and it just kept scrolling. It just like literally, I had to <laughs> scroll four times or something. I think you have like eighty something actress credits on there, um, so that's amazing. Like, congrats on all that incredible work. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV, so I haven't seen a lot of your stuff, but I'll tell you the two roles that are, that were not even like main roles that you've, that you've done that I loved. One was Sadie in New Girl. I loved your contribution there. Uh, always fantastic. I mean, you were in like eight or nine episodes, I think it was, but like always loved seeing you come back. And then you were hardly in there at all. I wish she would have come in like a more of a role, but, uh, What's her name? Tinnifer? Um, um Parks and, uh, Parks and Rec. And Rec. Yeah. I loved like that episode where you and April go back and forth. Man, that's I love that day. too. That was so much fun. Yeah, super fun. That but obviously, so you're fun. like way more well known for Grace and Frankie, uh, being Jane Fonda's daughter. Um, <laughs> I would I would die to do anything with Jane Fonda, let alone play her daughter on TV, right? Um, but uh yeah, super great stuff with your career. But what I'm interested in is uh the Jane Club and uh, this amazing book that you co-wrote. So let's let's spend the bulk of our time there, if you don't mind. And I know that the the Jane Club has had to. I want you to describe what the Jane Club is, what a Jane yeah. is, and and all that you know, all that it took leading up to you and your team starting this thing. But then, I think it's important to you know to point out and to talk about. Okay the main ways in which you all were functioning can't take place during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening, you know, like this is, this is pivot season for you all figuring out, okay, this is important work. It's super huge work and we'll get more into that, but we can't do it in the ways we did before. So why don't you start by talking about how did the idea for uh, the Jane club even come about? Yeah. I mean, it is connected to the book in a way because I was, I think writing, uh, yes, I was writing the book and I was starting my 
fourth season of Grace and Frankie and I had just had a baby and um, motherhood for me was really, well, I guess it was all the things, but I was very shocked after having my second at how difficult it was for me to kind of transition back into professional work outside the home. And I felt like I was either hiding. I mean, we just talked about this at Hmm, the beginning of our conversation, like hiding, not, not just the actual care, like the, the physical labor of the breastfeeding and the taking care of small children, but also hiding like the emotional labor of holding them in my head at all times and being with them at all times and feeling the weight and responsibility of being the steward of their childhoods. And, um, I, I felt like if I were to admit that, and if I were to say that without apology, that people would think that I don't care enough about this other professional work that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, you know, that I, that people would assume, and, and, and there's real data to support this turns out, um, you know, that when women are having children later and later, I had my first child at, at 34. Um, and now we're having children at the same time. Like we, we put this investment into our professional careers and it should, it's probably starting to pay off. And we are, starting to make the most amount of money we'll actually ever make in the entire course of our career. Yeah, sure. Right. And this that's is the prime. Intersecting, yeah. That's intersecting at the exact moment we're having our first and second children. Mm. And I was feeling the chaos of those critical years of those critical years of both caretaking and, 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 um, you know, child development and those critical years of your professional career. And, and, you know, conversely men and and so, so women either opt out of the workforce or start to get paid less, you know, they call that the motherhood tax. Um, And conversely, when employers look at men and, and look at men having children, they actually start to make more. And it's because most employers and companies assume that men are going to work longer hours, not less. Yep. You know, we assume that women are going to be taking off. We assume that men are going to be putting more work in. So anyway, so so th- this is where the Jane Club, the, the yeah. essential idea of prioritizing and centering the work of caretakers and the work of caretaking. And that extends also to the the paid work of caretaking. So um, centering and valuing the work of domestic laborers, um, centering and valuing the unpaid work that women do and men do in taking care of small children, taking care of elderly parents. I mean, I fundamentally believe that like, we, we like to think of ourselves as a society that cares about children. Um, but we don't really, <laughs> we, do, we do not, you know, we, we do, do not. not. And in the same ways that culturally is receiving all of these messages about mothering and stay at home mothers, um, and their work and how kind of, uh, devalued that work also is, you know, um, I just became very disturbed. I became really frustrated that I had internalized all of these messages 
from like one woman on the cover of a magazine about how she had done it all and listening to her hot tips on how she scheduled it and how she manages and does all these things and how there's very little actual institutional change. There's very few institutions that have been made and created with mothers in mind. Mm. Um, And so that's where the Jane Club started and came from. Um, You know, the idea that women could arrive to our physical location and they could drop off their children. You know, we took care of children from three months on. So our real focus was in the new mother and her transition and really providing um, some scaffolding around that transition and some real support around what that means because what also is happening and was my exact experience is that women are taking care of those small children and taking care of older parents. So on both ends, you know, we have this unpaid labor we're doing plus our professional careers potentially plus hopefully ourselves, Um, you know, so really starting to acknowledge and name the work of caretaking that women are doing. Um, disproportionately women. And so the Jane Club started as a physical location where women could come and bring their children to our child care center. We called the nest and the, the location we had in Los Angeles, the nest is on the first floor. And then the women would come up to the second and third floor and where the children were not allowed. There's a real separate, important separation of church and state. And then they could work do their work. They could meditate. We hosted classes every day. They could work out. They could get their nails done. You know, we didn't put a judgment value on what they needed to feel okay. For some women that meant, um, you know, that meant showing up for like an enrichment class, like a mm-hmm. Spanish class, or if they wanted to learn another language, we offered a lot of kind of enrichment um, educational courses. But also it meant uh, for some women, like getting a blowout <laughs> because that that was what they couldn't get to. And that, so all of these things, the basic premise was we're taking care of the women who take care of everything and everyone else. Um, and centering them in every conversation and making sure that we're offering child care all the time at our events at night, um, at our activist events. We do, we, we, I'll, I'll talk about the transition into the, the digital space, but we sure. still do tons of postcarding and phone banking. And it's really important for us to say, hey, just because you have children doesn't mean you can't engage. We will yeah. provide a way for you to do that. Um, we will constantly acknowledge that other labor you do. You do not have to make it invisible here. You will never apologize about having to parent. I mean, and that's something like people get in trouble for at the Jane Club if they say, I mean, I hope I didn't apologize in the beginning of this conversation, but people truly get in trouble for saying like, I'm so sorry, I have to run and pick up my kids. You know, yeah. we, we just don't accept that. Yeah. Um, and but we that's want to but that's been yeah, and that's been ingrained in people, right? You started out you started out talking about how in this country, 
you know, one of my most frustrating conversations that I have on a recurring basis with uh, fellow Americans um, is I'm Guatemalan and American. My dad came to the U.S. from Guatemala when he was a kid. So I feel very like in between, like I don't feel fully American mm -hmm. and I traveled the world for eight years and I, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag with me. But when people talk about us being the greatest country in the world, it's like, that's just simply not true. Like if you're talking about the ability to make money, yes, we mm -hmm. figure that out. And usually it happens by hurting a lot of other people in the process. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're able to make like these, you know, it, it, humongous amounts of money, a lot of people are hurt in the process, but we're not great in so many other ways. We're, I mean, we're high in infant mortality rate. We're, we're low on the edge. Like we are, we are low on education. And like you said, we do not provide, we're one of the, we're one of the only like advanced economy countries that doesn't provide it, like doesn't mandate uh, maternity leave and paternity mm -hmm. leave. I mean, there are countries that give you a year if you're, you know, for the mother in like six, six months or more for, for the father. Like that's the way it should be. Because those those first few months are so pivotal, but all I've experienced in my life is my friends trying to figure out how they're going to go back to work because they got to pay the bills. They're going to get fired if they don't. A lot of places don't even provide it at all, and they have. I mean, I have friends that have had to use their vacation days to stay home with their newborn. That it's is crazy. That's evil. That is evil. That's insane. That is no good. And so I love this. I mean, I forget the number right now, but it's over a hundred thousand dollars a year is what every mother. <laughs> is worth like for, 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 you know, again, it's disproportionately women that stay home. And I, I see that changing now and I'm glad for it, but traditionally it's like a hundred, it's like over a hundred thousand dollars is what their job quote unquote job is worth between cooking and laundry and caretaking. You put all that together, what a woman does with, with and for her children, uh, at home and it's ridiculous. And so I love yeah. the, the Jane Club. I love this idea that, you know, I, I saw on your website, honor all work, come as you are, show up, be of service. These are important things that, and I love even what you just said a couple seconds ago about not letting women get away with, okay, I've got kids, so I can't be an activist. I can't get involved. And it's like, no, you actually should, and you actually can and probably should. So we're going to help you do that. We're going to find the space. We're going to help you find yeah, the space to do that. And I'm always like fascinated by how people view that work of caretaking um, because it's, I mean, listen, even if, if you're just looking at it from like American value system and capitalism, like, well, that is, that is, we are investing in the next workforce if we just want to look at it that way. And that's not my value system, but like, if we just wanted to say, okay, sure. this work should be valued because it's an investment. Um which is, which is not how we function. And also like, I am also really obsessed with how little we value the elderly mm. um, who, who can't work, who can't feed into our economy anymore. Um, how we value, I mean, I think we're seeing it with the pandemic, those who take care of them and their work, uh, what we feel like they might offer a society if they're no longer making money. Um, so, I do believe that it is, it is, we are really due for a new conversation around value systems and um, productivity and our addiction to productivity and where our values that we say we have. I mean, I think we just, we love to say it, you know, but where they're actually showing up in practice 
And the Jane Club has really been formed. Now, since we had to shut down our physical location with COVID, we moved into the digital space. And although it was really scary and terrifying, um, and I, I thought in March, like, this is it, you know, I, I think we're, we're done. I don't know how we come back. What ended up happening is we expanded. So we had all of these women arrive um, in our digital community and, and we have an internal messaging system and we have um, child's care programming online. We have daily phone banks um, and, and activist opportunities and educational opportunities and wellness opportunities. And what I'm finding is like, oh my gosh, like we, we need to be connected now more than ever. And setting this standard for what the Jane Club is saying that our value systems are, mm. which are not rooted in, um, and if you have professional success, that's great. And we're going to celebrate that, but we're also going to celebrate all types of success. Yeah. You know? And we're yeah. also going to name and grieve together. And, um, we are ultimately more interested in like how you are than, than what you do. Yeah. Um, and, and we're at the core of, of why we started and why we're still here we are going to honor your work of caretaking in whatever way that shows up. We have a lot of women who are not mothers and never want to be mothers. And we demand that that's seen too <laughs> and that that's valued and that women don't feel that this has to be prescribed for their future, that that choice is just as valuable and should needs to be destigmatized. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, we have now, which we, we had some, but now we have even more um, of a diversity of genders. So yeah. we have men in the space too, who um, who are having a new conversation around like their roles as caretakers and what, again, I talked about my own father and how like I had that modeling, but most men don't. Um, and remember my dad saying to me, Oh, it really, he, he really appreciated that he got that time with us hmm. and didn't know how much he was going to enjoy being a father, you know? And I think most men don't look at that as a possible, I, I mean, I think most men probably assume they're going to be fathers or, you know, it is still like socially kind of prescribed, right? but don't necessarily look at it as something that might be the source of challenge and reward and deep reckoning and joy, you know, and accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah, I I've had this conversation quite a bit with uh, male friends of mine during this pandemic that again, traditionally were out there working, stay at home, mom, taking care of the kids, all that stuff. And now that the pandemic hit and most of them are, you know, in an office in their house, or like in my case, I'm in the back shed of, you know, in the back of our house where I'm working the last few months. And I, you know, spent a lot of time traveling, flying from here to there, meetings here and there, projects with clients and consulting stuff. And I was home not as much as I wanted to, but we, you know, when I was home, I tried to make it count, but I was gone for, you know, a week, 10 days at a time on a plane. Then I come back and we get reacquainted and do the whole thing. Now, since March, I've been at home. I literally, I actually had a, I had a trip planned for next month, my first trip in nine months. 
and canceled it two days ago because of this resurgence of, mm. you know, this, this spike. So I, I went from going on, being on a plane so much to, to nine months of none of it. But what that's given me is a, a deeper peek into the amazing work that my wife does. Uh, with our kids around the home, all that stuff. I still do, you know, I've always have been, you know, I cook, I help clean, I do the laundry, I do all that stuff. But the kid thing was the thing that I was missing. When I'd come home from a trip, I would literally, first thing I would, the first conversation I have is, hey, babe, like what's new? Like, what am I missing? What is the new quirk? What's the new thing, you know, Belle's getting upset about? What's the new thing that Roman's doing oh. to disobey? Like having to get that. And now I'm seeing it every single day. And it has been so good. For a lot of my friends, and I know for me, to um, be in this now for nine months, like really, really mm. feel it, really, really get to know it. And so I think the conversation, again, this new reality, right? The new, this new post-COVID reality is going to be, I think, really good for relationships, for, you know, and it's also exposing a lot of bad stuff, like relationships that weren't oh, good yeah. are now worse. Like I've had a couple of friends get divorced during this time and that sucks, but it's been hard. Right. But for those that are like really in it and trying to make it work and there aren't, there aren't those problems that, you know, that, uh, kind of, uh, the answer is divorce at some point, like it's deepened it and it's really helped out. And yeah, there's hard conversations and I've yelled more than I'm, than I, than I care, than I care to admit. Um, But, but here we are, me with a deeper knowledge and really being able to identify more with what my wife has been doing for, you know, eight years now. And I also think it's forced a lot of people. What I hope, you know, you're talking about the new post-COVID world. I also hope there's a new conversation around like intergenerational living and potentially, um, you know, elders uh, spending more time um, in homes, seeing like the rampant, you know, COVID cases and and what's happened in nursing homes and a real, really a new conversation around, um, the caretaking of elders and, you know, because I have been like particularly disturbed by that and how, um, it's not necessarily, and, and, and of course there's so many people who have zero choice and it's heartbreaking and right. they can't take care of their parents. And, and that is absolutely devastating. I've had that experience, you know, with family members who have gone through that with their parents and it's, it's absolutely heart wrenching, but I do hope that, that, that basic idea of like, if you're not well, I'm not well. And if the elders aren't well, then um, I'm not well. And if I'm not well, they're not well. And th- th- that yeah. sort of connection, I think in, in the same way we are with our children more <laughs> because we are in the same space. Um, I hope there's a new conversation around how we take care of those who are aging and can no longer take care of themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a real beautiful conversation. Um, we could talk about that for just an hour. I mean, I, nursing homes, again, as you pointed out, some people can't help it. And, and that's sad, but it's, it's a reality, but it, for that to be the default, uh, which it is for so much of our society, it's like, oh, when they get too old for us to take care of them or translation, it's too hard. And I don't want to do that hard work. Um, we're going to put them in this home and they'll be well taken care of, but it's like, it's not your family. Like those aren't your people. They don't care about you. And for, for, for centuries and millennia, there's been that family structure where it is from like birth till death, like you're a family, you're, you're taking care of each other. You're being taken care of 
you're being taken care of. And now it's right just not now, you know, I think that people have to make those personal individual choices, which I don't judge because we're not set up for another way. hundred percent. We're not yeah. set up. Yeah. You yeah. Know? We need to transition to that new sort yes. of society, that new reality and really to value, to, to value having elderly people part of our lives and to have, and there's hard stuff that's going to come along with that. The yes. older you get, the more senile you get, the more, you know, just things aren't all there yes. and, and that's okay. Let's have those hard, let's do the hard thing. Let's have those conversations. Um, that's really beautiful. And I, and I assume, and maybe I'm wrong. So if I, if I am, pardon me, but with, you know, with the transition from the physical space to an online space, I wonder if the price point is more so that more people can get involved. Maybe people that couldn't do the whole, you know, uh, uh, pr uh, physical space thing before, but now they can jump in on the, on the online community. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the, um, you know, the price point of our physical location always garnered a fair, a, a fair critique of how, um, you know, we were pricing out a lot of women who needed the service, you know, and um, we always had limitations there. We had limitations sure. because we had our rent and we had limitations because of how many physical bodies we could fit in the space. Yep. And we had limitations because we were also committed to paying our staff a living wage in Los Angeles. Um, so I could defend those reasons and they were true. Um, did I do the best job at like thinking of every possibility to work around that? Probably not. Um, so I think those were really fair critiques of our space. We've had much a much easier time making this accessible to so many women because we can lower our price points. It's, it's $50 a month to be a Jane, but um, we also work with any Jane who needs to be on a sliding scale. Mm. Um, Cause we can, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but we ask cause we're, we are, um, we are also running a business and want to pay not, everyone on our executive team. And, and I, I talk about our employees, but I'll, I'll talk about the executive team as like a different, um, a different situation because we have equity in the company and our setup is, is different, but we can't all get paid. I don't get paid. Our CEO doesn't get paid. So we still do charge because we want every woman who works to be paid for what yep. they do. Um, and we also want to grow and expand but we have much more of an opportunity in the digital space to make this an equitable setup and in an, a way more inclusive community. And because of that, it's better. It's yeah. just plain better. It's yep. more robust. The conversations that are happening with women who live in like Bumblefuck, Texas yeah, um, yep. and have a point of view and have an experience that's so wildly different from you know, the sort of like silo that I am in, in Los Angeles and the voices I constantly hear, we're better for it. The community is better for it. And um, it's really exciting. And uh, we also have a lower price point for jeans that are, are um, 60 and above. And again, we are committed to working with anyone who wants to be in our community on a sliding scale if they, if they want to. Um, so we just have much more capacity to, um, build the community that we actually want to build. Yeah. We're really limited with the physical location and the price point there. Um, and we were always chasing that. So, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, since March, we've grown, our membership base has grown by 450%. Amazing. And uh, so, so we're really proud of that. And, and Jane's are, are getting, you ask, what is a Jane? And I'm like, oh, it's so <laughs> what I have found, because again, I've also received a lot from this community and yes, I've been responsible for building it, but I've also sometimes just am witnessing it. And sometimes I'm just like really getting getting the the resources from it is that Janes are really um, interested in helping each other mm. and interested. They're generous. They show up as they are. Um, there's a commitment to um, like, I always say like being adults. And what I mean by that is like, if you need to come late to a meeting, you come late. And if you need to leave early, you leave early. Like we're adults, yep. you know? And um, there's also a commitment to working on ourselves. Hmm. And, and you know, we do a lot of racial affinity work. We do a lot of diversity and equity. We have a whole diversity and equity lab where, um we have, you talked about hard conversations, you know, transformative conversations that I can see are life-changing. They have been for me in understanding my own race and position in the world and, and, and the ways in which I walk through the world. Um, so that educational piece is really important to us and building a community that prioritizes that. Um, and we also like prioritize, I'm going to say it, but we do joy and mm. believe fundamentally that if we don't get in touch with like having fun and yep. even in, even in the work of, you know, for the white women in the space, understanding their identity and their race, especially as re it's related to Trump and the percentages that have come out of white women, even in understanding that and going through the difficult process, also committing to the joy of, of learning and the joy of like getting more free in whatever way that is. So, you know, sometimes I think people look at that work and look at, you know, all of it is so heavy and, and it is difficult. I'm not saying it's not. And there's a process that, that I think a lot of specifically white people go through. Yeah. Um, but I also think there's a lot of joy at the, uh, along the way and, and within community. Um, so we're, we have difficult conversations, we have fun conversations and um, it's, it's really, it's, it's hard to describe that. That's the only place we fail constantly is describing what it is sure. because ultimately it's a platform. And I was talking about Facebook the other day. I'm like, Oh, is it crazy to ask people to pay $50 to be part of our community and to join this platform where we offer both live gatherings. And then there's like the social connection online and there's all these different ways we connect. We have book clubs that are super engaging. We do all of this stuff. And, and I'm like, well, but you know what? People get Facebook for free and their data is being sold. <laughs> you yep. know, so like hundred percent. And, and we do, I think, a very good job of moderating all of our channels and facilitating the discussion so that those spaces, we don't use the term safe space anymore, but they are courageous spaces. There you and go. people are offered feedback. And, you know, um, 
and nobody's canceled and, and we, we try to make those spaces as harm-free as possible. Well, we put a lot of thought and energy into that mm. and that's not happening on Facebook. It can't. Nope. So yeah, there's the, an intimacy and authenticity to the space, this digital space that we've created that again has really been led by the community itself. I don't feel like I can take a lot of, I wish I could like take full um, credit for it, but it really has been community led. And, you know, we, we also like on our executive team did something that was super uncomfortable for me. And I'm so glad we did, which was in April, the very beginning of April, like we just started, we started talking to the community about how the business was going <laughs> and just told them. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> that. Just like, this is hard. <laughs> we, if we don't like grow by this percentage, like we will have to wrap it up. Um, yeah. We did have to let someone go. We did have, like, we are uh, completely reorganizing to try to make this work. We also don't have childcare, like just fully putting it yep. out there. Yep. Um, and although that was deeply uncomfortable and I was in like a full body sweat, I was also <laughs> like, people showed up to help us. Beautiful. And so we've been really this transition because it was, we were so caught off guard forced us to be transparent in a way. I'm like, Oh, I'll never return to that other hmm. version where like we yeah. all the leadership holds itself over here to this, like, and, and we try to do all the work and not show it and just like yep. show the beautiful experience. Um, yep. That's really changed, and that's the culture I'm now really, like actually really proud of. I really, really, really love the Jane Club. Like I, <laughs> Come be a I mean, Jane, Nick. I, I, I might, I might. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's much different. Like it, it, people are going to pay for this because they're not getting any of what you just described on a platform like Facebook. Facebook is so confusing. It's so like blank slate. Like. Yeah. Anything goes there. So you can't really, I'm not saying you, it's impossible to build real community, but it's so fucking fake. And it's so easy for people to get in there and sabotage ideas and conversations and stuff. And, and, and primarily we're not all there for the same purpose, right? Yeah. Where if you join something like the Jane club, you're there to uplift, to empower, to mm -hmm. receive, to yes. give and all of that. Um, I mean, every city needs a physical Jane club, but I'm so glad that now this thing gets to grow like globally, uh, online, oh you know, it, it, by the way, like that's the other thing that's happened is it, it makes a, our, our growth plans now make a lot more sense because we can, we can look at the map and see where all of these chains are and then work on opening physical locations and where there are already these communities yeah. as opposed to what, you know, opening a location, physical location is so capital intensive and, um, you know, the way we are growing now is just so much more sustainable and um, makes a whole lot more sense. That is still the North Star for me, making sure that we're offering child care. Um, again, we, we don't have uh, a government that, that subsidizes it and, and provides it. And, and so making sure, especially for new mothers who are um, who want to be able to, in between calls, come down and take a music class, who are not ready to do Amazing. that full separation from their very, very tiny baby, who can breastfeed. I know I said kids weren't allowed on the second and third floor. The only exception to that, of course, is breastfeeding. Babies sure, who are welcome yeah. everywhere. Um, but who can, 
who can do the work of mothering without apology. Yeah. Um, that's important is really important. And so that still remains the North star. And I actually feel like now we're better set up to get there. Beautiful. We're about out of time, but I do want to ask you quickly, because I think the, the the book is so important, represent the women's guide to running for office and changing the world that you co-wrote with Kate Black. Um, you know, sort of a, a toolkit, right? A guide for women running to run mm-hmm. for office. And I think we need so much more of that. There's so, what, like a half a million different, literally a half a million different political offices that someone can hold. And right now, still by and large, they're being mm-hmm. uh, held by men and by white men. Uh, mostly. And so that's got to change in this next generation so that our kids have the space to work out and publicly thrive on all the stuff that we're teaching them in the home, right? Because if they if, we, if they experience it at home and then go out into a society that is misogynistic, that is, uh, you know, anti-women or not anti-women as much as like this, you're in that role and I'm in this role. We've got to get rid of that. So real quickly, like what's your elevator pitch for this book and why should people go read it? Because they should. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like similar to the Jane Club is the, the you know, w- when we look at some some of the startling numbers about women in leadership and, and who's at the table making incredibly important decisions that, that affect women, that affect our lives, our bodies, at the future of our children, our planet, um, we are disproportionately not at the table. And I think so much this, there's a conversation around like girl power, just empower yourselves, like love yourselves, ladies. And there, to me, that's, I'm not interested in that. I yeah. am way more interested in um, actually providing tools and yeah. providing the granular resources that take that idea. Because we can all say like, yeah, women can do it. Any girl can be president. Well, guess what? We had a really amazing candidate and we couldn't vote for her. So yeah. um <laughs> probably the most qualified presidential candidate. So I, I I do think that we need to talk about the real stuff and how it's actually done. So the book really provides a roadmap, you know, that takes a woman from that kernel of an idea of like, maybe I should consider this to actually putting her name on the ballot. And Um, because it's not easy. And, and the information on civic engagement, I really do believe we don't teach civics anymore, really in public nope. schools, is kept away from us for very good reason. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kept mysterious. It's seen as someone else's work. It's yep. seen as something you do if you have a ton of money, if you're male, if you have degrees, um, and if you're white. For the rest of the of people, like it really seems better left to someone else. And so the book proposes a basic premise, which is that we should all consider it. Women should consider it as something they might do. That's all we're that's all the book is asking. Yeah. Consider it. And consider it with these things in mind. We're going to talk about the reality of your life. We're going to talk about the fact that women don't make as much. We're going to talk about the fact that women don't have access to wealth in the same ways that men have worked for generations to build. We're going to talk about the fact that women are taking care of small children and elderly parents. And that time management is going to be a key part of this. And we will talk about some of the internal barriers as well. 
um, the the inferiority complex, the imposter syndrome that disproportionately affects women. And when even when they are far more qualified, don't feel that they are. Um, so we address all of it. And I hope it provides women who are potentially considering this as something they might do um, a vision and how it, it can be done. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the conversation shifting drastically from, hey, women, we're inviting you to the table, right? Because that implies that the women don't own the table, right? That implies mm -hmm. they're still getting permission to come. They have to get permission to come versus women owning the table, yeah. right? And that's the shift I'm looking forward to seeing in the next five, 10 years. And, and it's and you're, you're helping with the Jane Club, with the book, you're helping uh, people feel empowered enough. You're helping future AOCs and Ilhan Omars to say like, I can go from bartender mm -hmm. to Congresswoman. Yes. Like that's a very, that's a very plausible transition. It's not impossible. Listen, it, it's called we the people. It's, a, it's not called yes. we the certain, the certain ruling class. Yeah. And, um, and, the, but, and, and that's the shift that needs to take place. I talk about the constitution all the time. We, the people did not mean women, no mention of women mm -hmm. in the constitution. Uh, black people were three fifths of a person. So they weren't even seen as real people and native Americans were seen as savages in the constitution. Mm -hmm. So it was only for white land owning men. Mm -hmm. And that needs to shift finally several hundred years later, mm -hmm. we need to take that seriously and say, okay, if we, the people doesn't mean all the people, then fuck your constitution and let's rewrite the damn thing because it doesn't apply right. to everybody. It doesn't apply to everybody. We can't, we can't like salivate and like worship this document that doesn't represent everyone. That's, right. That's dumb. Mm -hmm. It's dumb. Okay. I'm going to let you go. You have been amazing. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Uh, thank you for the Jane club. I hope that some of the listeners will join men and women will join the Jane club after hearing our conversation. And, um, I so appreciate you coming on today. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for having me. If anyone is interested, they can head to janeclub.com and there is a special code. Um, oh my gosh. See, this is where, this is my failure. Like, <laughs> well, I, can, I talk I can, about the big stuff, but the little stuff is so hard. Well, let's uh, just tell them, let's tell them there's a code. There's you a code. get it to me, you get it to me later okay. and I'll put it in, I'll put it in the show notes and we'll go from it'll, there. It'll be a special code for half off your first month. And again, I did talk about this, but, um, you know, we, we do offer Jane sliding scales memberships as well that are completely anonymous. Um, and, and so I hope to see some of your listeners there and thank you so much for having me. My friends, I truly hope you enjoyed this conversation today with June. So much to learn from her about taking care of those that do the most work around us. Visit letsgiveadam.fm for resources and links. You can sign up for our email list there and you can listen to the other 180 podcast conversations there. And make sure you check out janeclub.com. In my mind, the monthly membership, it's super cheap for what you're getting in return. And remember, they do have that sliding scale membership in case you need that help right now. So check out janeclub.com. Follow June Diane Rayfield everywhere online. She's a fun follow. Lastly, thank you all for listening. Again, I say this every week and I mean it every week. I'm truly honored that you come back week after week after week to listen to me talk with amazing people. This show is produced by Chad Michael Snavely and the team at Sound On Sound Off Studios. Let's give a damn as part of the Matter Media family. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com or text me 646-328-6414. I love you all so much. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. 
Bye for now.